All right, well, we uh, slowly are making our way uh, through the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13. And um, we'll be focusing today on verses 7 and 8 um, of this Olivet Discourse. And uh, as you know, that it's the, the signs of the end times. And that's what we'll be going through, signs of the end times. Now, someone might be thinking and, and would say, are you serious? Are we really going to spend this long time studying about the end times? I mean, why? Why are we going to do that? It's not like it's going to edify anybody. I mean, as we heard last sermon, it's just a, a, a truckload of jargon info about a freak who's called the Antichrist and about all other stuff that are probably not relevant to us. So why should we study the end times? Well, I want to build my case before I dive into today's message. You know what sets Christianity apart from all other religions is that we have a great Savior, a loving Savior, such a glorious Savior who leaves no room for us to feel lonely or worldly. Because of His inconceivable love that He loved us with, He saved us. He changed the very fabric of our own hearts and He continues to shower us with amazing heavenly blessings and He promised to keep us and to preserve us. We know that. We know that this is true. And that no matter how much we love Him, we don't love Him enough. We want to love Him more and more and, and much more. We know that. But we also know that so long as we live in this unredeemed flesh of ours, we know that there is something that is holding us back from going deeper into fellowshipping with Him, from tasting a sweeter satisfaction of His beauty. What are the obstacles that would obstruct our vision from beholding our great Savior? Whom we regard, whom we esteem, more valuable, more satisfying than anything else in this world. There are entanglements to this world that need to be untangled, right? How? How do we untangle them? There is this sinful glue that's still attached to our old self that must be broken. How do we break this bond? How? How do we become set free from the affairs of this world and its fleeting false pleasure, which just really destroys rather than satisfies? How do we do that so that we would be drawn nearer to Christ and so that we would learn how to enjoy Him more and more and more? How? Well, brothers, sisters, this is why I love teaching end times. If this world was the Titanic, the end times is the telescope through which 
you take a look and you see that this world with all of its lustful desires will sink down to the depth of hell. Do you feel glued to money and the love of money? Are you stuck to TVs, movies, entertainment, and you just can't let go? Are you taped to a relationship that is hindering you from flying and soaring up in the sky and dancing with your Savior Jesus? Brothers, I urge you to study end times. End times is like a canon. When, when you spend good time studying it, this canon will be aimed at this carnal glue. And when it fires, it has a way to burn it off and to break you free. Then you'll eagerly enjoy the imminent coming of Jesus Christ. I mean, who would study the rapture of the church in depth? Who would know that in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, Jesus will snatch us from this miserable world and that he will transform our bodies and we'll be forever with him? Who would study the rapture of the church and his heart wouldn't cry out, Come, O Lord Jesus? Who would study the cataclysmic chaos at the end times? The tribulation period, the Antichrist, the famines, the death, and yet persist to lay treasure on earth. The end times reminds that our, our time on this miserable world is but for two seconds span. End times teleports our minds to the future for just a short time. But then when we come back to the present time, we would live wiser. Right? Why? Because we will live with eternal perspective. We know that this world is vanity or vanity and grasping of the wind. Because when we fly to the future, we would see the Antichrist and how he would massacre thousands of Christians. We see the cataclysmic wars break out. And we feel the devastating earthquakes with these unmeasurable magnitudes that would rattle the earth. And then when we come back, we would conclude all is vanity of vanity and grasping of the wind. The end times convinces our hearts like the song that says, You may seek earthly power and fame. The world might be impressed by your great name. Soon the glories of this life will all pass. But only what you do for Christ will last. So brothers, sisters. Let the world build their earthly fortunes and fame upon this quicksand. See it sink at the end times. Let them live their fantasy palaces which, which are made by melting ice. But you, brothers in Christ, you, 
bride of Jesus. You study the end times. So to be ready for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Second Peter 3 tells us that when we know the end times, it will lead us to be more patient, more holy people. Jude tells us that when we know, when we meditate on the end times, it will lead us to be more prayful, more lovers of God, more faithful evangelists. 1 John 3 tells us that the end times leads us to be more pure in heart. So with that being said, I, I urge you that no matter how dull this information may be about the end times, no matter how um, mind power consuming end times may be, I urge you, brothers, pay attention to end times as we study it today. Open your heart. Fill your brain with this truth so that it would impact your life. Don't disregard end times as though, uh, well, it's something that it may not be relevant to me. No. If it's said in the Word of God, then it is our loving duty to find how it applies to our lives. Amen? So let's start reading from verse 3. We'll read from verse 3 to verse 8, but we'll focus on the last two verses, 7, 8, and 10, 7 and 8. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? And Jesus began to say to them, See to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and will mislead many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Now this Oliver Discourse began by the disciples asking Jesus, as we see here, what will the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? Sign of what exactly? Well, if we cross-reference this verse with the parallel account in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24, verse 3, if you recall, we've gone through this in depth, we find that in, in that verse in Matthew 24, 3, it says, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. So the disciples were very clear in what they were asking about. They were asking about the signs not preceding a destruction of the temple as per se, but they were asking about the signs preceding the second coming. Just before Jesus would reign here on earth on the throne of David and then establish his earthly kingdom just as the Old Testament prophesied 
numerous times. And the disciples, just like all the Old Testament Jews, they, they believed in one coming of a Messiah. And Jesus coming, that one single coming, he would free them from the tyranny of Rome and he would set up the nation of Israel to be his own special people. They didn't see the, the coming of Christ as we now see it. They didn't see that the, the, there is a first coming where he would come to save people from the sin and God's wrath. And then there would be a period that would extend even beyond 2,000 years. Then there would be a second coming where Jesus would come to judge the world. No, they didn't see that at all. All they saw was just that one single event, one single coming. And they were asking Jesus, who is with them at that time, and they asked him, what are the signs preceding you revealing your full glory and your appearance to the whole world? You're now with us. Is it going to be next week? Is it going to be next month? When is it going to be? They thought it's just not too far off from that time 2,000 years ago. So that's exactly what Jesus was answering. Jesus answered. And all that we see from that point onwards, his response to them asking about the end times. Now, last time we looked at uh, the first sign preceding the second coming of Jesus. And, and uh, just to summarize it, it was just a, a strong, powerful deception. That's the first sign. And that deception ultimately manipulated um, and orchestrated by the Antichrist, the beast, John calls him. And this Antichrist will come by the power of Satan, and he will be in contact with demons of hell. He will deceive those that will perish, and the whole world will be blindfolded, just following him. And we saw that even though this is mind-blowing deception at a grand scale, but yet it's consistent with the Old Testament prophets as well as the New Testament writings. Well, now and for today, we want to look at the second sign of Jesus' coming, second coming. What is the second sign that precedes the second coming of Christ. And Jesus tells us it's wars and rumors of wars. And how we're going to look at it today is that we again want to look at how Jesus asserted it. And number two, the Old Testament attested it. And number three, the New Testament affirmed it. We're going to look at what Jesus said and we're going to dissect it word by word then we're going to go back in time to the Old Testament and we see that the Old Testament writings attested to this fact that the sign of the second coming, preceding the second coming, is that there will be wars and rumors of wars as well as in the New Testament, they confirm what Jesus said. So what is the second, second sign that precedes the second coming of Christ? Number one, Jesus asserted it. So we read now in verse 7, and Jesus says, When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, there will be wars. 
but not just wars or rumors, this or that. No, wars and rumors of war simultaneously. Meaning you will hear of wars close by and you will also be hearing of rumors of wars at a far distance. Wars, meaning you will be in wars, engaging in warfares, and it will affect you directly. And rumors of wars, meaning you'll be hearing reports of wars that will affect you indirectly. Rumors of war. Wars are rumors of wars. Meaning if you haven't heard of a war, you will be hearing of a war. And if you're not engaging in a war, you will be in a war. Now, furthermore, in Matthew 24, that corresponding and exact verse, and um, I want to read it to you in verse 6, and please note how it's worded. It says, you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. This is in a present active. What that means is that um, you will continually be hearing all the time, constantly. This is not just a once-off event. It'll be a, a regular occurrence. Again, please note the plurality. It doesn't say war and rumor of war of a war it says wars and rumors of wars everything is plural in this meaning you'll be inundated with wars ambushed by them all kinds of wars political wars economical wars cold wars hot wars every inconceivable and every kind of war that is imaginable a constant bombardment of news about warfares you turn on a television or a radio station or a satellite channel and all the channels will be talking about the havoc and the destructions that are caused by the wars and the rumors of wars wherever you go whatever youtube channel or facebook page you will click you will be updated with the progress and the widespread of all the ruins and all the catastrophes and the calamities because of the wars. Wars and threats of wars will be the norm in this tribulation period. Now, who's involved in these wars? Verse 8. Have a look at verse 8. We'll come back to the rest of verse 7 in a minute. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. It's world wars with all kinds of countries involved. Now, what's the difference between a nation and a kingdom? Well, kingdom is one that has a king or a dictator. Nation, it's ruled by people or maybe a republic nation. A group of people that are just leading this nation. So it will be communist countries or democratic countries. All kinds of political regime nations. They will be engaged in warfare. There will be international wars, national wars, civil wars, ethnic wars. And if that is not enough, let's go back at verse 7. It says at the end of verse 7, but that is not Yet, the end. 
It seems like the end, right? But Jesus says it's not going to be the end. Well, if it's not the end, what is it going to be? Again, is Jesus referring here just to everyday life? Because some people teach, I oh, just talk about these 2,000 years. Yeah, there'll always be wars and rumors of wars. There is nothing different under the sun. It's, it's, that's what Jesus is talking about. Is this really what Jesus is talking about? I mean, just a couple of days ago, just uh, on that one same day, I heard about, uh, I don't know if you heard about this, Iran, they bombed an Israeli ship. And it was the same day where I heard that Russia is uh, wanting to go into war with uh, Ukraine. And obviously we hear rumors of wars between China and Australia. Is this what Jesus is talking about? No, it's not. Wars and rumors of wars are not the end, but what are they? What are they? Jesus tells us exactly what this will be. These things, read verse 8, the end of verse 8, these things are merrily, and notice if you have Nazbit's italic, it wasn't in an original text. These things are the beginning of what? Birth pangs, labor pains. So they're not the end, but they're not the beginning either. They're not the end, they're, they are the beginning of the end. So just like labor pains don't begin at the conception or throughout pregnancies, and ladies, you should thank God for that, right? But when do they begin? They begin at the beginning of the end, just before birth. And then what happens to the labor pains? Remember, we spoke about it before. So they continue to increase in what? In frequency and intensity until the baby is born. And just like labor pains, wars and rumors of wars will take place. Yes, they do take place nowadays in this present time, but they will be there in the end days, in the end times, and it will be like nothing we heard of before Jesus second coming these wars will increase in their intensity and their rapid fire succession and there will be wave upon wave of wars and these waves will grow and they will become tsunamis of wars and they're going to build up and swell up and there will be an ever increase of destruction devastation and ruins until they reach a massive proportion. A worldwide grand scale war that never, that was never heard of. In fact, in verse 19 of the Gospel of Mark 13, it says, For those days will be a time of tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation, which God created until now, and never will. Basically, the entire world will become a war zone. The entire globe will be a battlefield. Can you imagine what the world stock exchange will be like during this time? Or the property prices? It's crazy, right? I mean, who, who would dare to invest in the share market during this time? So everything will take a nosedive. It'll be crazy. World War I, World War II put together would be like a, a speed hump 
in comparison to these cataclysmic calamities at the end of the age. Theft and gangs will increase. Murder will increase. Drug addiction, sexual immorality will increase. It'll be an anarchy. Fear and terror surely will grip the souls of everyone during his time. But then, there's something interesting that Jesus just inserts there. Something beautiful. It's a beautiful nugget here in the midst of all of this doom and gloom. And I don't want us to miss it. He says something is like a gentle breeze in a scorching hot day. Have a look right in the middle of verse 7. It says, what? Do not be frightened. Don't be alarmed. Don't be disturbed. Jesus doesn't want his disciples to be discouraged. And he says to them, don't lose heart. Well, Jesus, you, you just told us about a lot of bad things. How can we not lose heart? He says to them, he says to them, those things must take place. Don't be frightened because those things must take place. I mean, Jesus, had you not told us that these things must take place, probably wouldn't have been frightened. We would have spiritualized it and we would have thought, ah, oh, that's not really what he means and wouldn't be frightened. But now that you said, this must take place. We're now frightened. <laughs> you know, it's like someone that comes and tells you, oh, by the way, there is a thief. He's going to break into your house and he's going to take all your belongings, all your life savings. Then he comes later and he wants to comfort you. He tells you, don't be alarmed. Oh, really? Why? Because it's definitely going to happen. <laughs> now, that doesn't make sense, right? I mean, so much for comfort, yeah? It's weird. Well, what is Jesus trying to say here? Don't be frightened, because these things must take place. You see, Jesus, what he's saying here is that these things will take place because God will be the author of all these things that will take place. These things must take place because God said they will take place. It wasn't up to the Antichrist or Satan or the false prophet or all the unbelievers of the world that these things will take place. This will take place because God said it will take place. Let us not forget who's steering the ship of time and history, brothers. Those things must take place, meaning that there is no war, not a rumor of war that will take place that God didn't ordain it. To take place. Let us not forget that it's God who authored every minute event in all of human history. Yes, unbelievers, because of their sin, they will be motivated to have wars and rumors of wars. And they will be accountable before God for this. But it is God who is the cause of all causes. He is the one 
that has predetermined, preordained that all of these terrible things are going to take place. When Jesus was prophesying about these things, brothers, sisters, he did not teleport the disciples to the future. He took them all the way back to when first God decreed all things that must take place. It is God who does everything as He pleases. And it is God who's in control of all the world affairs. Is there an our Heavenly Father whom we call Abba Father, dear Daddy, who loves us dearly? And because it is that same God who's in charge of all things, and that includes the end times, is the same God who knows all things, and it is the same God who loves us infinitely and eternally. Therefore, don't be frightened. He's got it under control. Jesus asserted, that's the second, the second sign, wars and rumors of wars. And what Jesus said, by the way, is nothing new. The Old Testament prophets, that they attested that there will be wars and rumors of wars that will take place at the end times. So let's now come to the second point. And we want to go back to the, to the Old Testament prophets because I know that there, is many there are many people out there that say, ah, oh, this is not really going to happen in the future. But I want to show you that even the Old Testament saints, the prophets in the Old Testament, they also agreed with Jesus that these wars and rumors of wars will take place in the end times. So can I ask you to turn to Daniel chapter 11, verse 40. Daniel eleven forty, And he says this. At the end time. Now, what does it mean at the end time? It means at the end time. All right. So now Daniel looking in the future and he's telling them, okay, this is what's going to happen at the end time. And he says, the king of the south will collide with him. Who's him? He's the Antichrist. Now, Daniel already told us a lot about the Antichrist preceding that verse 40 in his book. The Antichrist, he's already been brought into the scene and Daniel wrote that the Antichrist, uh, he will lead a great kingdom that once upon a time was known to be the old Roman Empire, which is now Europe, by and large, Europe. And basically, the power of the Western world will be laid at his feet, just laid bare at his feet. And obviously, um, the political instability between Israel and its neighbors will continue to escalate. And Israel will be deeply concerned that they want and they want to have protection against the imminent danger that they're going to experience from the surrounding regions. Daniel 11 verse 27 tells us that Israel, as a result of this, they will make a covenant with the Antichrist, which will last for seven years. And Antichrist, this Antichrist, he will protect them from the neighboring threats. Now you're up to date with uh, what Daniel said. And now we come to verse 40, and he says here, At the end time, the king of the south, 
That's, if you read it in context, that's Egypt. Obviously supported by other African nations, but it's Egypt that will be leading this. That's the king of the south, and it will collide with the Antichrist. So obviously Egypt, motivated by hatred towards the Jews, they will move aggressively against the Antichrist. And, but they won't be alone. So we read in verse 40, in verse 40 of chapter 11, it says, And the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, with horsemen, and with many ships. Now, the king of the north, again in the context of this, would be Syria. And they will join hands with the African nations. And um, obviously, it's not just going to be Syria alone. Um, they will be, Syria will be supported by other powerful nations in the north, like Russia, and who knows what else in the future. And they are going to come now to attack the Antichrist. So now you have in the battlefield the king of the south allied with the king of the north and they're making war against the Antichrist who is the king of the west. And where will this take place? It tells us in verse 41 um, that it's the beautiful land. Now beautiful land is a holy land. The holy land is Israel. The Antichrist will win a glorious victory at that point. So we continue reading. That he will enter countries and overflow them and pass through them. And in verse one, it says, verse forty-one, it says he will also enter the beautiful lands where we talked about, and many countries will fall. Go to verse forty-two. Then he will stretch out his hand against other countries, and the land of Egypt will not escape. Verse forty-three. But he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. And Libyans and Ethiopians will follow at his heels. So the Antichrist will come hard and he will crush his enemies. He will plunder their goods. And we're talking about massive, massive destruction. Are these... Um, Nations that he'll pass by. We're talking about a nation after a nation will turn into a bloodbath by this Antichrist. Now, these are the wars prophesied by Daniel. But what about the rumors of wars? <laughs> Read verse 44. Immediately after it, it says what? What does it say? But rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him. Now you have east, west, north, south, the whole world. It will disturb him and he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. West, east, north, south will be at war and rumors of wars exactly as Jesus prophesied. And the Antichrist will go around in a rampage. He will massacre kings, nations, armies, countries in warfare. Then he will set up his power worldwide. Can you just imagine the cry and the weeping in those days? I mean, how, how can we ever describe the magnitude, the, the, the immense hurt and pain of mothers that would lose their children? Because of these wars, or are we able to even fathom the pain of the children that will lose their parents during this time? 
It's crazy. The point here is that the Old Testament perfectly consistent with what Jesus just predicted. Jesus asserted it. The Old Testament attested to it. And now we come to the third point. And that's where we're going to spend a lot of time. A lot of time. The New Testament affirms it. Let's, let's now flip to the last book of the Bible. We'll go to Revelation. Because Revelation gives us a good insight to wars and rumors of wars at the end times. So please turn to um, Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6, and we're starting from verse 1. And what John is doing here, John is the writer of this um, book, and John here sweeps through history, and he takes us all the way. And in that chapter 6, verse 1, is the beginning of this tribulation period. The end times. And so before I want to show you these wars that he spoke about, we're not going to see all the wars that he spoke about. There's quite a few of them, but we're going to see just the four, four references to wars. But just before I show you this reference, just want to give you a very quick overview um, from chapter 6 to chapter 19, um, where all these things will take place. Just a quick overview. Now, from chapter 6, John starts by telling us about seals. There are seven seals. The last seal, the last seal, out of it will come seven trumpets. And out of the seventh trumpet, there will come out of that seven bowls. So you start with seals. Seven of them, trumpets, seven of them, and balls. In this sequential order, from the first seal to the last ball from that, this period of time is seven years, seven-year period. The tribulation period is seven years. And this entire period is when God will pour out the fury of His wrath upon the earth. The earth will take its fair share of God's judgment during a seven-year period. Now, why is there seals and seven of them and trumpets and bowls? Well, each seal or each, each seal or trumpet or bowl, there, there is a group, a cluster of cataclysmic events that will take place in this sequential order from the seals to the bowls. Now, what do we know about the birth pangs? They start slow and they're less intense. And then over time, they increase in their pain and in their intensity. And that's exactly what we see in the seals and the trumpets and the bowls. They start slow, so the seals will take uh, years to be uh, fulfilled. Those events will, will take years to be fulfilled. Then the trumpets will take about months but the balls will take about days to be fulfilled. They increase in their uh, frequency and they also increase in their intensity. So some people uh, uh, say that, oh, no, 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 no. Uh, what happens is that there is a repetition. 
There's a repetition over and over again. Well, where they are right, yes, there is a, the same kind of pain. When you have labor pain, it's the same kind of pain. But just because it's the same kind of pain, it doesn't mean it's the same instance. It's not, it's not the same event. It's a different event that looks similar, but it's, but it's more intense, and they become more and more uh, frequent. Now, furthermore, it's just a little overview. We need to know this. We need to study Revelation. It's a blessing, a special blessing for us when we study Revelation. So just bear with me. This seven-year period, it begins with the release of the Antichrist to deceive the earth. Where will this happen? In the first seal, right? You're getting it, right? In the first seal is the release of the Antichrist, which is the first sign that precedes the second coming of Christ. And the last, last event is the coming of Christ, which will take place in the seventh bowl. Now, do we get this? Is it hard? Easy, right? Well, I want to see if you actually got it. Right? I want to see if you got it. I'm going to give you a little test. You ready? Some of you are not ready. You ready? Good, John. All right. Now, if the first seal is the deception of the Antichrist, which is the first sign preceding the second coming of Christ, that's the first seal, then what is the second seal referring to? Wars and rumors of wars. Let's put that to test, right? So we read now verse 3 and verse 4 in chapter 6. Let's read. When he broke the second seal, that's the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come. All right, well, come, that's easy. Verse 4, and another, a red horse, went out, and to him who sat on it, it was granted to take what? Peace from the earth. Now, when you take peace from the earth, what are you left with? War, right? Now, we read, men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. Right? So, there is war in the second seal. And if this second seal, all right, second test now, I'm giving you another test now. If this second seal is the first labor pain, of wars and rumors of wars, what do we expect that will happen later? Exactly. Repetition of wars, rumors of wars, but with greater intensity. And as you come to the end, there will be more frequent and there will be greater calamities, right? Let's have a look. When I look at four references to wars, uh, time does not permit that we go through everything, of course. So we'll only go and, and focus on four different wars, four different references to these wars. So let's start with Revelation 9 and verse, verse 13. Revelation 9, 13. And the first war that we look at here, it's going to be between, believe it or not, if you read the Bible literally, all right, um, you will find that it's a war between demons and mankind with demons will kill one third of mankind it's crazy it's what i read it literally it's god's word so now we'll come to the sixth trumpet by the way sixth trumpet that 
you got seals, and after the seals, what do you have? Trumpets. How many? Six. Now we come to the sixth trumpet, verse 13. And we read, Then the sixth angel sounded. That's the sixth trumpet. And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. So don't need to worry about that. It just means that I heard something from heaven, all right, near God. And one sang to the sixth angel who had the trumpet. Now, this is where you need to pay attention. He says to, the, to him, release the four angels who are bound at the great river of Ephrates. So there is a great river. It's called Ephrates. It's in the Middle East. And there are four angels that are bound in that river, right? Yes. Now, good angels are never bound. God never binds good angels. These are fallen angels. And as we go deeper into the passage, we will realize that they are terribly evil angels. They're not just fallen angels. They are very powerful demonic spirits and perhaps that's why god bound them in that place now god has power we need to understand this god has power to bind and to loosen demons at his command and we see this in verse 15 look at it it's amazing this is very interesting verse 15 it says and the four angels these are fallen angels who had been prepared for what for the hour and the day and month and year were what? Released. Who prepared them? God did. And when will he release them? Precisely when he wants to release them. Precisely in his own calendar, God will release his demons. God is always in control even over his own enemies. Now, what will these fallen angels do? Let's continue in verse 15. It says, thy would kill what? third of mankind sounds unbelievable right i mean i did my maths yesterday and googled it up and it was two and a half billion people out of the world population that will die at their hands now you read this and you think whoa that can't be true we've got to spiritualize this and i think john understood that there are some that will have this tendency to spiritualize it. so guess what john did he wrote it again in verse 18, just to make sure we don't spiritualize it. So he says in verse 18 this, a third of mankind was here. He didn't need to write it again, but he knows that we have the No way. Two and a half billion people. No way. So he said, a third of mankind was killed by these three plagues, by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone, which proceeded out of their mouths. The earth is going to turn into a graveyard. Just think of how in the world you're going to bury two and a half billion people. That's God's judgment because of sin. And what's crazy? What is crazy? I want to show something that just blew my mind away as I was just going through this and studying it. John tells us, have a look at verse 20. The response of the people that are left on earth that didn't die, the two-thirds that didn't die. Look, it says here, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not what? Did not repent. They did not repent of their works of their hands. So as not to worship demons 
and the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. We know that. We know that they can't uh, see or hear or walk. But John is making a statement here how stupid these people will be. And verse 21, again, he repeats it. For they did not repent. Thank God it's not just me that repeats all the time. You know, even John repeats himself, right? And they did not repent. Repent of what? Of their murders. Nor of their sorcery. Sorceries is another word for drugs, by the way. Drug abuse. Nor of their immorality. Nor of their thefts. Despite of the death of one third of mankind, unbelievers will continue to worship all sorts of things. And they're going to plunge deeper and deeper into sin. That's just how callous, how dead their hearts will be at that time. No one will be moved by the death of their families. It's crazy. Now we're moving to a second wall. Uh, let's, let's go to uh, Revelation 13, verse 7. Revelation 13, verse 7. It was also given to him, that's to Antichrist, to make war with the saints and to overcome them. Now, th this time the war will be between Antichrist and whom? The saints, the believers. And to overcome them and the authority, uh, and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nations, nation was given to him. Given to him by, what, by whom, by the way? Hmm? By God. Let's not forget, every, every war that takes place, God is in control. God is in charge. The loving God, who knows all things, He's in charge. So don't be frightened. So anyway, continuing on, it says here, All who dwell on the earth will worship Him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. They will do what? They will worship him. So somewhere between this previous war that we just looked at and this one, what's going to happen? The Antichrist will deceive all unbelievers to worship him. You see, previously, what was it that the unbelievers used to wor were worshiping? They were worshiping all sorts of things. But now, the Antichrist got the whole world wrapped around his little finger. Now he's got them. And after he will deceive the world to worship him, he will do something amazing. But don't overlook this. This is, this is crazy stuff. That once upon a time, they were worshipping all kind of religions, false religions, but now there is one world religion, and that is the religion of the Antichrist. What happened? What's going on? They didn't repent. Yeah, God brought judgment upon judgment upon these wicked people. And rather than man come to their senses and come to Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins, man will willfully drown deeper and deeper into the pleasure of wickedness. And no matter how much God will pursue man, man in the end times will not repent. He will not repent. And so what does God do? God says, fine. I'll give you over to the Antichrist. Man will reach a point of no return. 
And God says, well, if that's what you want, that's what you'll get. Congratulations, you just secured your own damnation. It's crazy. So they worship the Antichrist. Now, after he deceives the world to worship him, you know what he's going to do? He's going to get them ready for their biggest war ever known to mankind. This is now the third reference to the wars and the rumors of wars in Revelation that we're going to look at today. And it is the worst and the most intense war of them all. It'll be chaos, it'll be monstrous, and the bloodbath will be on steroids. It's the battle of Armageddon. So have a look at Revelation 16. We'll look at Revelation 16, verse 13. This is the third and last reference to war that we're going to look at today. In verse 13, it says this, And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, that's the devil, and out of the mouth of the beast, that's the Antichrist, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits, three demons. So ugly that John here says, like frogs. They're not frogs, they are like frogs. And in verse 14 it says, For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world. So all the kings, all the leaders of the whole world, to gather them together for the war of the great day of God. So the Antichrist will whistle and all the kings and all the leaders of the whole world will come and they will gather. Antichrist knows this is it. He knows his end is near. His time is at hand. And somewhere in his little brain, he thinks that he, if he can just gather all the power of the world and come again as Jesus Christ, he'll kill him. <laughs> so John adds here, a little now at the end. Just, just to show us the absurdity, the stupidity of this Antichrist. He says this. He says this. The great day of God, the what? The Almighty. The omnipotent God. So the Antichrist is planning to overpower the all-powerful God. He wants to end the life of the giver of life. How? It's just crazy to think that way. Anyhow, the Antichrist will gather, the, gather all the leaders and all the armies of all the world at Armageddon. It's a place in Israel. It's a huge, huge place. Um, Noble, um, Napoleon um, once said that um, it is the, uh, the best place of the best battlefield in the world, uh, more or less. And uh, when we now are gathered at the Armageddon, guess who's going to meet them? Jesus, right? And it's kind of like Jesus is saying to, to the Antichrist, well, 
have you brought the kings and the armies and, and the soldiers and everybody else and, the, and the false prophets? Yes. All together in that one spot? Yes. Well, perfect. I've got you exactly where I want you. You're not one inch too far, one inch, one inch too close. That is exactly where I want you to be. And then, brothers and sisters, this will be the literal fulfillment of Psalm 2, where Jesus will break all these nations with a rod of iron. And so Jesus' enemies now assembled at Armageddon, but they're assembled. Yes. There is evil motivation in the heart of every individual that will be assembled at that time, but that's not ultimately the cause of them being assembled. They're assembled because God ordained for them to be assembled at that time in His place. And when did He ordain that? Before the foundation of the world. So now we come to the fourth reference. I want to see how Jesus responds. How will Jesus respond? To these people, to his enemies. So we come now to Revelation 19, verse 11. And now Jesus, he's the one who's going to be waging his war against his own enemies. Now pay attention. This is the last war that we're, going to, that we're referencing today from Revelation. There are more wars, but it's just we're going to look at that because of time. So it says here, And I saw heaven opened. So they're all gathered, and then now heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. This is none other but Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus, the everlasting champion, will finally arrive as heaven will crack open. And he will enter our atmosphere, bolting out of the sky, riding a white horse. And in righteousness, it says he judges and wages what? War. He is not coming to save unbelievers at that time. He is coming to conquer them and to crush them. Verse 12. His eyes are a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. Meaning when Jesus will burst into the scene, a crown of sovereignty will be on his head and his eyes will be like a blazing fire. Now I don't have much time to go through the rest. Of course I, can't, I don't have time to explain verse by verse here. Time won't permit me. Uh, but suffice to say that Christ will slay all of his enemies. He will leave none. So much that to appreciate the, the magnitude, the severity of this slaughter, the Bible does tell us that there will be um, a bloodbath that will extend a distance of, get this, 321 kilometers. And you know the depth of this? 1.5 meters. Between 1.5 to 2 meters. It'll be bloodbath on steroids. Enormous. Huge. Let's go. We'll skip a few verses and we'll go to verse 17. 
And it says, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God. There is no reason why we can't take this literal. Verse 18, so that you may eat. So why are they going to assemble? What is a great supper to the, those birds that are flying in the sky? So that you may eat the flesh of whom? The kings, the flesh of commanders, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of whom? All men, both free men and slaves. Small and great. The Antichrist will get killed by Jesus, the you know, and the rest of the, the false prophet, Satan will be thrown. And it says, verse 21, look at verse 21 now. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And what? All the birds were filled with their flesh. Terrible, terrible ending to the enemies of Christ. Those unbelievers who will not repent and turn away from their sin to Christ, they will experience terrible ending. This is the end of the worst war before the end of the age. When Jesus will bring an end to all of his enemies, how good is it to be in Jesus' side? <laughs> For those of us who are Christians, aren't you glad that you belong to Jesus? Aren't you glad? Now, as we come to the end of this message, I want to bring you back to the start, to the introduction. How can we, brothers and sisters, how can we hear these things and not take seriously what Jesus said when he said, do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and with thieves break in and steal. How can we not take seriously what Jesus said when he said, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor dust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Let's reflect on this. How can we hear all of these things, meditate and reflect at the end times, and yet not the force of the text that says vanity of vanities and all is vanity does not penetrate deep into our souls? How? Brothers, sisters, our time here but short. And anything that you have here on earth will not last. In the light of these brothers and sisters, I want to ask you to fling away the cares of this world. Because we know that this world and all of its lustful desires will pass away. Let our hearts burn with desire in obeying Peter's command. Peter who said to us, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Fix all your hope, all of it, at that revelation of Jesus Christ. Let your heart be hooked 
unto the second coming of Christ, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And let that determine how you live your life. Let that determine what priorities you set, you set for yourself in this life. Brothers, sisters, this is not our home. Jesus is coming back. He will come back. He will take us to our real home. Where we will be forever with him and with one another. Remind yourself of this truth, brothers and sisters. Remind one another of this truth. Jesus is coming back. So with all the sufferings and all the agonies that this miserable world would throw at you, brothers, sisters, let us continue to be faithful till the end. Soon the glories of this life will all be past, but only what you do for Christ will last. Unbelievers, my dear friends, what do you think when you begin to reflect on these truths about the end times? You know, when heaven will make way and Jesus will come back, he will come back with his mighty angels to judge the living and the dead. And it will be too late for you to repent then. Too late. Now you have an opportunity. Now. Now. There is opportunity for you to embrace him as your savior. Jesus offers himself freely to you, friends. He offers himself to you freely and unconditionally. Freely means that you don't have to do any work for him to accept you. You don't have to have any kind of feelings, holy feelings for him to accept you. Salvation is not found in your feelings nor in your works. Salvation is found in Jesus. He offers himself unconditionally to you. What that means is that no matter how terrible sinner you are, he offers himself unconditionally to you. This is why the gospel is good news. Even if you are the worst of the worst kind of sinners, Jesus offers himself unconditionally to your friend if you just come to him. I urge you, consider Christ's humility. Consider how he came down from earth, came down from heaven to earth, and how he humbly obeyed all God's commands. On your behalf, if you come to him. He's so humble that he obeyed to the point of death so that he would offer you his perfect record of righteousness freely. No, don't just consider his humility. Consider his love and his mercy to you. How Christ this powerful, mighty Christ 
was hung on that tree, on that cross, and bore the sins of all of his people and your sins if you come to him. How loving is he? He bore your sins freely and unconditionally. He is a loving Savior. He's a merciful and humble Savior. I plead with you, come to him and you will find forgiveness for your sins in him. Come to him and you will find the satisfaction, the true satisfaction that you're created for. Come to Christ. He is so good. He is so great that no matter how much of a great sinner you may be, Christ is a greater Savior than you could ever imagine Him to be. Well, this is the end of today's message. I pray that whether believers or unbelievers, that we look into end times and realize this world is but a vapor. Only Christ is the only substance that will last for eternity. And he's so good to enjoy him and to live for him. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you, Lord, for your word. It will happen because you said it. And we pray that we learn how to apply this truth in our lives when we go home this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.